All right, so I'm Dr. Samuel Lyles. I'm from the Cyber Forensics Laboratory here at Purdue University, which is over in the College of Technology. Some of you have seen me in classes or have seen presentations. Um, I'm a professor of DIFFR, Digital Forensics and Incident Response. And uh, Dr. Spafford said to me something about bikinis and uh, convertibles out in California doing something. He said, come in here and talk to you all, so I decided I'd do that. So who am I? I'm nobody special. I'm nobody important. I'm just a professor here at Purdue. And basically, uh, I teach digital forensics is what I teach. Um, I also teach some things that having to do with intelligence. I teach cyber warfare, cyber crime, those kind of things. I'm a non-traditional student. I didn't actually enter higher education until I was 28 years old. So with all those people out there saying, well, what would you know? You know, a school of hard knocks. Listen, I was a Marine. I was in the Army. I was a cop. I broke bones, got shot, got stabbed. I got the hard knocks down, all right? The uh, entered higher education, did my thing, had a lot of fun uh, getting my PhD. I, I actually am a serious alumni. Um, you see my blog on there. If you're interested in these slides, those will be located there. And uh, my goal for today is just to kind of have a conversation about the topic. And what we're going to talk about is threat intelligence and digital forensics. Most of you are going to be technical. Most of you are interested in information security. I am not an intelligence wacko weenie kind of guy. I never worked for the NSA. They just paid for my PhD. So definitions matter. And these are kind of my take on the words. You'll find a lot of definitions, but these are mine. You can find your own. Um, in this context, threats are actors. These are the entities, environmentals, all of the things that have negative consequence on the information technology enterprise. These are all the bad things that can happen. A lot of places you go and they say, well, threats are vulnerability. Well, no, no, that's not quite right. Threats are external entities, external actors, bad things that can uh, do stuff to your environment. The weather is a threat to your environment. Intelligence itself is the gathering of uh, information for countermeasure development and analysis for impact mitigation, mitigation within this context. So we're looking at mitigating bad stuff somehow, some way. And so that's why we use intelligence. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that actually means here in a minute. One of the parts that we're looking at and the reasons we look at it from a forensics focus is we're looking at the idea of attribution. Now, attribution, everybody says, I want to put the bad guy behind the keyboard. There's books calling, putting the bad guy behind the keyboard. And uh, that's great, but it doesn't really answer a lot of the questions when you're dealing with larger scale threats. When it's a nation state that's trying to get into your network, there's a lot of people behind the keyboard. When it's a concerted effort of a bunch of bad boys in 4chan that want to post pictures of poor celebrities up on the web, it's a concerted effort. How many bad boys do you want to put behind the keyboard? Attribution breaks down at the forensic level when you start looking at it that way. So we look at political attribution. Listen, remember the main is a great thing from the Spanish-American War. It says, hey, remember the main. Here we go. There was this battleship that was blown up. We don't really care who did it. We're just going to bomb everybody. That's kind of the concept. Technical attribution is a lot of stuff you saw it went around Stuxnet. Well, this framework was used to create this malware, and that framework is developed by this group, and that framework does this, and they use this coding mechanism, and there's this keywords in there, and there's this. That's technical attribution. That technical attribution is the idea of creating what kind of things go on. In a lot of ways, it's related to how we do things like technical intelligence. Forensic attribution, though, is I'm putting you in jail, or I'm going to use the power of the nation state against you. When we're talking forensic attribution, it's not just the court of law as we see it in the United States. It's the court of law as we see it and the war crimes tribunal. It's the whole idea of a larger scale idea of forensic attribution, where we're going to go and say, that entity did this, that's why we bombed them. We see that all the time in how we handle weapons of mass destruction, how we handle terrorism. We don't actually attribute to an individual usually. We, at, we attribute to a group at that larger scale effort. But what we do is we use all of the physical evidence, all of the chemical evidence, all of the DNA evidence, and it would be possible to take somebody into an international court. So those are kind of the three levels of attribution. A lot of times what we're looking at with forensics, the application of science towards developing facts, regardless of the domain, 
So it could be civil engineering can have its own version of forensics too. And when, when a bridge or a building falls down, we use forensics for figuring out who we're going to blame or put in jail. So all of that's the same across many, many domains. When we're talking about the digital domain, the idea of cyberspace, we're talking about the idea of applying all of the things we have, digital incident response, forensic incident response. The idea of how we do those things is important, and how we start is even more important. Because what happens is, is if you start out at some level below the forensic response and try and go back to it, so you start out at incident response, and you're saying to yourself, a bad thing has happened, we'll clean it up, get out the janitors, the, the sysadmin show up, we start destroying evidence, we can't ever go back to the forensic level. We have to declare off the, the start that we're going to start out at a forensic level. And then if we decide it's a non-incident, we can move down. That's another thing. There's a big difference between events and incidents. You know, five events might make up an incident. So you, well, actually, five billion events if you're target. But the idea is you can have many events that build into one incident. And declaring an incident is actually a very important thing. Inside of our world as technologists, computer scientists, sysadmins, technical administrators, whatever, that there is this whole idea that we are the goodness gracious of the information enterprise. But the reality is, is there's this group of very large sharks swimming above us, and those people are all of the people that are the lawyers, general counsel, because whatever they say goes. Regardless of what you think technically has to happen, general counsel outrules you every time. So getting them on board is important. The three meanings of intelligence. So there's intelligence as knowledge. And I'm not talking about, about you know, your intelligence quotient and things like that. We're talking about a practice that was developed long, long ago. You know, Caesar used intelligence to try, try and beat back the, uh, the barbarians from Rome. Intelligence is knowledge. What intelligence have you about ISIL? What is the, what is the things you know about it? So, and you can always tell in the news, the people that get it and don't, if they call it ISIS, they don't understand. If they call it ISIL, they've got it. So there's this whole thing going on there, if you're just kind of curious. Uh, you'll see all the government wackos, or excuse me, uh, pundits, the guys working in the government will say things like ISIL, and then you'll see immediately the reporter refer to it as ISIS. So there's this whole cognitive disconnect going on about attribution there, because ISIS means one thing and ISIL means another thing. And so the, the attribution there of the actors is very specific on the government side because it's political. The intelligence as an organization. What does the Central Intelligence Agency think about that? So the intelligence is the name, right? That's the way we call that group. And intelligence as an activity. The intelligence behind the operation must have been difficult. So the process and analysis is another meaning. So you see people talk about this and they'll talk past each other. Especially people that haven't been exposed to these practices in the real world, they really talk past themselves. Recently, a, a young guy from uh, an agency that doesn't exist said to me that, you know, you be careful because if you talk about this, you have to realize you're talking about, you know, the people and the tool sets, and the tool sets are separate from the people, and you got, uh, he was right. He was absolutely right. You've got to be careful what you think about these things because a lot of times the acquisition of the tool sets is, in, in fact, its own form of intelligence practice. So I've got a hero, and my hero is a guy... Sherman Kent. Uh, this guy is like one of my heroes. I read all the stuff that's out there in the open source. And he has a very specific quote about what we talk about when we talk about intelligence. We have to keep this in mind when we deal with information security, with technology, with all of the things that go into technology. We have to keep in mind that no matter what we do, the man, the person, cannot be supplanted as the intelligence device supreme. The human brain trained appropriately will always outstrip the computers and everything we have in the way of analysis. Large set analysis, big deal. Human brain can outdo everything. Because we all have this thing called a gut, an instinctual feel for the reality that we see. It can get us in trouble, but more often right, it, more often time it is right, and we have to keep that in mind. So Sherman Kent 1949 wrote the definitive work on intelligence, strategic intelligence in America. This is the book that basically set up everything as you see now. When they came out of the office of OSS by Donovan, when they came out of that, 
practice, there was, for a period of time, no intelligence agency in the United States. There was none. And what they did was they said, we need to set up an intelligence practice. And Kent, who was at Yale at the time, came back to Washington, D.C. and said, all right. And he set up the intelligence practice that would become the CIA. That's why at the CIA they have the Sherman Kent uh, Intelligence Center. And so he worked until the 1990s. And he, he was a lot more like me than, than, than I would like to care to admit. And I wish I was a lot more like him because he wrote the definitive work that gave us basically everything we've got, right? Um, the ability to write a definitive work is when you're first to the table. He, uh, his practice, uh, what he did and what he taught at that point in time, most of it's all classified and we'll never get to read most of it. But what is out there is actually brilliant kinds of work. And the best part is it's because he wrote on the patterns of intelligence analysis, on the patterns of doing the practice that they work today. When we talk about threat intelligence within the domain of inf information security, we're not even to the level of 1949 practice. So the principles and patterns that he talked about back then are something we can actually work towards now because they are universal. They are really a pattern that we can apply. So the intelligence activity itself, we have surveillance operations, research operations, acquisition, delivery, acceptance, interpretation, and implementation. These are the core things that you do in the activity. If you don't have surveillance, you won't know what you're looking at, right? Because you're not looking. You have to derive a certain set of goals and things out of that. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But the next thing is research. So the first two things is you watch people and you get things. So all of those satellites that are spying down on us while we read newspapers and they're reading the comics, all of that stuff is the surveillance side of things. Reading our email as it's transiting the cables, that is part of the surveillance operation. But that's only a piece of it. The other piece is the research operation. Looking at what that means. And it's really important to understand that I can read everybody's email and have no clue what it means. Having read my kids' emails and texts, I can tell you. I have no idea what they're talking about because it's culturally dependent. There are a lot of things that go into understanding the principles and things that are, people are talking about, the process that they use. Uh, a person once told me that the best way to tell if you understand a, a community or a culture is if you understand their humor. If you don't understand their humor, you do not understand them. Once you get into those kind of things, then the acquisition processes, how do we go out and acquire it, the idea of delivery, acceptance, interpretation, which is the analysis side, and then the implementation on it. If you get all the intelligence on the, on the planet, and you process it, you analyze it, and you understand it, and you do nothing with it, why did you do it? That's a big part of what we see in technical intelligence. We just don't do anything with it. Or we use a threat feed from a vendor, and we just implement it, and we waste our time. We completely waste our time, resources. Blood and treasure go down the drain. So there are actually manuals out there for this kind of stuff. And what this one talks about is the idea of how an action item comes in. The commander, whoever it is, general boss, whatever, says, I want to know this. And they go into an idea where they plan on what they're going to do. They prepare to go get the stuff. They collect on what they're going to be looking for. And they produce some kind of report and they cycle back through. This idea of analysis and dissemination is an important piece to this. Because often when you produce a report, it goes back and goes back to the, the entity that asks for the information. They say, I actually meant more like this. And so it goes back into the cycle and they, you polish it up and it comes back out. Things like national intelligence estimates, we don't get to read very often. But the ones that are out there are kind of interesting to read. And understanding what you see is the process of a committee rather than a person gives you a good idea of why some of the caveats are in these things. Because you go back, and as you're going through this process, the first pieces of knowledge you get are aging. So the locations of the tanks are changing. The location, location of the missiles is changing. The location of stuff. The mechanisms that the people are using to attack your network are changing. And so everything's aging, and you have to keep revising as you go through this process. So today's answer may not be tomorrow's answer. We always go after the intelligence practice and say they suck, they didn't know what they're doing, but we didn't see the process. We only see the failures of the results. And they might have been right on target, but as we go through, it fails. 
because that process is always churning along. So intelligence is knowledge. It's the idea of description, reporting, speculation. It's organization, who, whom, and how. Um, it's also methods, mechanisms, and sensors. And this is where we find ourselves in the digital domain, is looking at technical intelligence as mechanisms, sensors. Now, the reality is, is everybody out there, as you walk around in your daily bay, you've got a bucket load of sensors in your phone. Geolocation, physical, telling you how many times you move, measuring your steps, you know, sound, video, audio. This is a huge sensor package. You know, people talk about a drone as a sensor package. You've got one in your pocket and you carry it around and generally you're sitting there tweeting and giving all kinds of feeds out to everybody. And in aggregate, that's a huge database problem or a data problem, big data problem. But the reality is, is I can pattern off of that. And so you're giving all of this information up and it's out there for whoever wants to go access it. Now, drawing knowledge out of that, drawing and analyzing and answer questions that are of interest is a big part of this. But you can do it. So what are the goals? What are we trying to do with this stuff? What is the end all of this process? We want early warning. I want to know before you attack my network. I want to know before you get in and eat, read my mail. I want to know what's going on early. Now, I may do a variety of things to do that. I may set up a honeypot sitting on my outside of my network and you attack that before you come in and I go like, oh, here's your, how you're going to compromise me because you attack that. Or I may have a company that I contract with that sets up many honeypots and they detect it. You know, on my blog, my blog is on a shared web hosting platform, completely insecure, completely insecure. I, I watch on a daily basis as hosts that are all, or, or as websites that are on mine get blacklisted when they get attacked and hacked, right? It's, there's no way a shared hosting solution in a data center with WordPress as the front end is going to be secure. I do a lot of things to try and secure it to keep the, the, the script kitties out, but I can watch the attacks roll in. So I'll get an email, oh, there's an attack rolling in. And I'll go look at some of the, my feeds that I read, threat feeds, and see if it's a new attack, an old attack, or something like that. And go block stuff on my WordPress installation. Very, very small thing to do, right? But I've had conversations with people in corporations, and I went, so I have this WordPress, and they go like, so, big deal. I said, and this is what I detected. I watched as the attacker used my non-allowing them to hook up to my system as a mechanism of doing a pivot attack into their servers using the email rejects as a form of command and control. It's a very slow process. But think about it. And so we set up a little experiment and watched it. And by golly, we were able to track people. Because the rejects are actually as much information as you would need to be able to do attribution of who's doing it. So they don't see at their system this reject getting sent back, but I do. That's pretty dang cool. That's what happens when you're in a consortium. We actually have a cyber threat organization that's made up of McAfee and Symantec and all those guys and Fortinet and a couple of others. And they do that kind of stuff. And they do experiments. Just like we talk about doing in research in graduate school, they do that kind of stuff. Because they're looking for threat actors and the only way you can get there is to do early warning. Find them when they're doing the recon phase. So the other thing is discovery of trends. I want to know what's trending. And I can watch in systems as people are attacking and using forensic practices, I can grab evidence of what they're doing and see trends. I can see malware variants from one group that uses a set of, of IOCs. We call those indicators of compromise. See the same malware variant with different IOCs. Now it's the same software with different configuration packages in it. That's a big deal. That means somebody is out there selling the malware variant. And if these two groups, one's in, one's in uh, Europe and one's in Asia, that means they're in some kind of national 
kind or international kind of crime ring that's going on. And I can watch that. And we have groups that do not just technical intelligence with this, but they're actually in the web forums where this stuff is being sold, watching the variants so that they can create the indicators of compromise off of things other than the standard IPs and domain names and those kind of things, and actually get deeper into what those mean. So that gets you into the idea of preparation for hostile actors. I want to know who the hostile actors are. Now, every corporation I go into, I ask them about things like, who are your hostile actors? And they name competitors, or they name you know, different crime rings that are very common, or whatever. And I go, no, no, no. Who are the hostile actors that got in last week, or last month, or the last year? Can you identify them? And they go, in general, no. Bad guys get in, and we clean up, and that's it. Very rarely do we see the level of effort that was put into finding the people that did like Target, that'll likely be found with the J.P. Morgan hack. Very few times do we see that level of effort applied to the lower-level crimes, where the real money's made, because there's you got to remember, it's the old Sam Wall kind of thing. You can do the big one, the big splash, and likely get caught. Or you can do a lot of little splashes and build something really big because there's more money in volume than there is in selling one. And so there's a, a big part of that. Oh, it's also a lot harder to detect. So we want to also come up with mitigation strategies. So the intelligence types that we've already talked about are pretty simple. And we focus on tech int, cyb int, and dni int, which are... Those are the technical intelligence, the cyber intelligence, um, and the, the network intelligence. So those are our defense uh, network intelligence. So those are great. You can go Wikipedia, look them up, look up intelligence types. You'll get this long string. They'll go into all the signals intelligence. They'll go into all of the people that do these different things. And the reality is, is that good old, we go back to, to uh, good old Sherman Kent, and he says, we've got personalities. What are the personalities? Personalities tell me a lot about people. Military. Is it a military organization? And how are they structured? There's different forms of military structure. Not everybody's formed like the United States is formed. There's also political, economic, and, so and social impacts. There's moral impacts. There's scientific impacts. Those countries with low scientific output are not very high on the cyber uh, threat matrix. We can look at a, a bunch of things in cyber and say what, what's going on there. Now, a lot of people don't like cyber as a word because we've used it so often to mean network or computer. But the reality is, is when the word was originally brought into the lexicon of the U.S. federal government, it was in the 1980s. And it was to take these ideas of politics and social, moral, philosophical, humanistic characteristics and put those into an umbrella with the technical. Really, it was a, trying to force something like what Sirius is, which is interdisciplinary. We were looking to create this thing. And the technical guys don't like that. The signals and intelligence guys don't like that. You end up with these poor liberal arts majors going like, but I can help you with that problem. And you know, I go back, and Sherman Kent was a history professor. This is a big deal. That's why the word cyber actually holds sway. It's about command and control. And to understand the features of command and control is very, very important. Because when you apply communications and coordination and computing and intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance and all these other factors to it, you end up with a very large piece of the pie that everybody's fighting over pieces of the pie versus trying to solve what the problem set is. And that's why we use the term cyber today. In the 1990s, the CCRD group was, was starting talking about information warfare. They came forward. Then we take it even further into the 2003, 2005, and my phone rings. There's a lot of, lot of things going on there. We can talk about that another time. But the reality is, is that's the why the word cyber. A lot of people don't like it. You know, if you go to uh, DerbyCon, ThoughtCon, you know, Black Hat, DEFCON, whatever, and you say the word cyber, they make you drink, right? I drink tea, so it's not a big deal. But the, the reality is, is that that's what goes on. And, and it's because the technical guys don't understand why we would do that. I'm a forensicator. I'm as technical as you're going to get. But you've got to understand that's why we do it. 
So in intelligence, and I'm not going to go over the entirety of the slide here, but I want you to understand that there's reliability versus validity, right? And when we focus on the reliability, you can be a reliable source all day long. You can have a reliable acquisition method for getting intelligence all day long and be completely wrong. You're not giving us a different story. You're just telling us the wrong stuff because you don't know. And a lot of times what happens in intelligence field is even the people in their own agencies you might be operating against don't know. How often do I go into a corporation and I talk to somebody and they have a picture of the world and how they fit into that world and they're completely wrong? And there's nothing, there's nothing bad about that because that's the nature of being, you know, being in front of the elephant. What is it? It's a big gray wall. Well, until you get back and actually look at it. That's why we have strategic, operational, and tactical. But when you're at the tactical level, it's very easy to get wrapped around the axle and not really understand what's going on. There's validity. You can be completely non-reliable and still be right. You can still be valid. You can be right. You know, as a friend of mine says, even a blind squirrel finds a nut from time to time. This is completely valid as what can happen. We prefer if you are reliable and valid. But that's not necessarily how it works in intelligence. And when it's technical intelligence, you can be completely right about what you have collected and completely wrong about how you attribute. So what does digital forensics do? It knows and reports how the threat perceives an attack. Did they think they succeeded? That's what we want. Because there's a whole gamesmanship about this. So you attacked, and I have two options as, as the receiver of the attack. I can say, yeah, you attacked, or I can ignore you. It's completely valid to ignore them. Because if you give them a response back, you're now telling them how to succeed. They may feel they succeeded, and they didn't, but you may want to tell them they succeeded to see what they do next. Either way is valid. There's a gamesmanship here that is a completely unexplored part of how we should be doing some of our security. What does the threat operate against and what specific vulnerabilities? We can detect vulnerabilities before they've been disclosed by watching the attack vectors as the zero days are attempted to be operationalized. We can watch the behaviors of the bad guys, pull data out of what we're watching, and say they're trying to, they're trying to inject code into this particular module with this, and we don't understand why. It's, what, what are they trying to do? And watch them evaluate, re readjust, and keep doing it. And we watch particular processes and servers and computing systems to see what the bad guys are doing and draw out what they're doing so that when we figure out what the success strategy is, we can go boom, patch, and be ready to go. A guy on Twitter today referred to a CVE that was just out. said it took longer to write the blog post about the CVE than it did to actually patch the server. So what is the countermeasure bypass mechanism utilized by the threat? So I'm going to tell you guys a secret. Can't tell anybody. You can go on my blog and you can read a whole paper on this all day long. It's called Defense in Depth is basically dead. Okay, so look on my blog for Defense in Depth and you'll find the actual title. And that's because the pericity of the surface is a built-in function of how the system works. A perfectly secure system you can't get to anyway. Anytime you put in a lock mechanism, you have to give it a key. And as soon as you give it a key, it's only a way of bypassing the key that's necessary. So, NSA's IDART initiative looked at this. A variety of labs have looked at this. And there is no way to actually secure a network perfectly. There's no way. Just none. I say that to people and they go, ah, I'm going to come up with a way. No, no, listen. Because the way it happens is the pericity of this tax surface is a requirement for the functionality. It's as designed. And any significant, substantial attack will look like an as-designed event. It will use it exactly as designed to still attack you. And that's the nature of the information domain that we deal with. So what we have to detect is the hostile versions of that. And that's a lot harder than it sounds. 
And what we have to do at that point is then dr derive mitigation strategies for it. So forensics provides technical intelligence. We, we talked about this already. Protocols and source and destination IP addresses, date and time of attacks, frequency of attack. Date and time is important. You know, we, we can actually watch certain computing systems on the, on the planet and we can say, this threat actor wakes up at 8 a.m. of a particular time zone, starts attacking all day long, gets off at 4 o'clock, you know, takes a lunch break, we can see the drop off, comes back from lunch, back to attack status, comes along, end of the day, they go away. Oh, by the way, they're working with somebody else who shows up afterwards, spends 15 minutes, you know, in the handoff, boom, attack again. Watch the same cycle. And we can figure out, well, okay, there could be swing shift in Europe or, or day shift in, in, in China. I, I don't know which it is, you know. I don't need to know. I can watch some stuff like IPs and figure it out. But I can watch that. Time-based analysis is a huge part of how we can actually identify threat actors. We look at what they're targeting. Everybody goes for the money, okay. I, you know, it's, it, it, it's the old adage, you know, where do you, why do you attack, go to the bank? Why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, so all the, all the crime groups. But what's interesting is we can watch groups that will use social hacktivism. So you watch a social hacktivist attack. It goes on for a while. Maybe they're attacking somebody because of their political or social beliefs. And that group has some kind of other interest, maybe a business interest or some other thing. And you'll watch in the middle of that, watch a really sophisticated attack come in, be successful, not be crowed about by the, the, the hacktivists that are involved, and watch an exfiltration of data, money, credit cards, whatever they're going after bomber plans. So watch that happen. What happened? Somebody used that social piece of the hacktivism to hide their own attack. And if it wasn't for the forensic processes we do to try and detect this at the network forensics level or at the host forensics level, we would never even have knowledge of that. But it's really important for us to understand so that the next time we might have forewarning of what to expect and watch for because they can be very sophisticated attacks. So, so people that say, why you know like computer science? Well, here's the thing. I'm a tech, we're, de we're dealing with technology here. Technology is a study of the art and craft of doing work with tools. That's all it is. A blacksmith is a technologist, okay? He's not a chemist. He's not a physicist. He may be something of an engineer, but he is a technologist. He's just doing work with tools. That's all I want to do. I make people more efficient when doing those things. So as a person who is a technologist, I enhance the quality and efficiency and capability of work through tools. That's what I kind of do. That's what my job is. And so when I look at intelligence, it's a form of technology, and technology is inherently multidisciplinary. The intelligence practice, multidisciplinary. The tools, procedures, mechanisms of intelligence are inherently a thing that we study to try and develop technology solutions around. And threat intelligence is an assessment of the tactics, techniques, tools, and procedures that impact the information enterprise. This is all related. That doesn't mean that computer scientists don't play in this, although this slide is here to bug spath. The <laughs> idea is, is that we can do this job and draw on a vast array of expertise, including the liberal arts majors. We can't do it without them. It's important to understand that. And a lot of the people that I get involved with when I'm doing behavioral analysis are sociologists and psychologists. And I point out that my, my partner in the lab, at the Cyber Forensics Lab, is a sociologist. This is important to understand. In structuring analysis towards an actionable threat intelligence, we use a risk management heuristic. The risk management heuristic is from Dr. Dan and Julie Ryan, doctors both. And we use the idea of risk because we, we need to be able to communicate this. And we look at threat times vulnerability. Now, this is not a formula. This is a heuristic for us to discuss the concepts. We look at countermeasures minus the opportunity cost. Now what happens is, is your opportunity costs, if they go up too high, they decrease your ability to meet your mission objectives. And if you can't meet your mission objectives, you're in trouble, regardless of what the bad guy does. If you shut down the network because you're worried about bad guys, huge opportunity cost, big countermeasure, you still lose. 
Um, and then the idea of impact. If you make impact zero, then the rest of it doesn't matter. You have no risk. Can you make impact zero? No. I, impact is always there, even if it's to yourself. So an incident response, what is incident response? Incident response is the sensor. So the sensor, this is the sanity sensor on the network. If all of your security stuff worked, incident response guys would have nothing to do. And our forensics team, we would be drinking lattes. I, I'd like to be drinking lattes right now. The, uh, the point is, what, the case of where everything fails, this is where the answer can be found. This is the team, the group, the job function, because in a lot of places the security incident response forensicator is one person. But you change roles. You can't be the security person and the forensics person. And in fact, the security person or role, the incident responder is an audit of that. Not the scan people, not the people that are out there doing your vulnerability awareness, not the people doing your PCI or, or Sarbanes-Oxley or whatever your rules are, S70 audits, whatever those guys are. Those are not the people that are auditing your security team. They are part of your security team. The people that really are auditing it are the incident response because this is when the actual adversary has been able to act on a vulnerability. A threat has acted on a vulnerability. The countermeasure has failed. There is an impact and it has been detected. Incident response is now your final check on all of that process. Scan team, countermeasure. Whoever your vulnerability guys are, countermeasure. You guys doing the security on the system, they're uh, countermeasures. Vulnerabilities themselves are inside the company. They exist no matter what. That's a really important piece to understand because this incident response team is your final check on being able to secure your network. And they are the, in the protect, detect, and correct side of things. And you'll see this actually different places depending on if you're reading Air Force literature, you know, Army literature, or, or some textbook somewhere. They, some people say respond. There's all kinds of ways they do these things. But they're the correct piece of this because they're the ones that are going to give you the information back to secure the enterprise. And if you're doing incident response, take a pow now. You are awesome. We've got to get back to reality because, you know, I always find that no matter what happens, the only time I get money is when bad stuff happens. And I told the story uh, last week, and immediately after telling the story, three people came up and re said, oh, it's much worse than that. You know, I was working with a company, and I was helping them with the, their uh, incident response to a breach. And it was not a big breach. It was a small breach, in fact. And I was talking to one of the executives, and the executive was talking about how great they are because they have this plan, and it was a small breach, and they mitigated the impact, and they were good to go. And I was like, wow, that's really, really great. And then I went down and talked to a person at the leaves of the organization, you know, that person that's actually doing the job. And the guy goes, listen, we just bought a $30 million enterprise solution for securing the network, but we couldn't afford one more incident response person. I'm one of only a few that we actually have. $30 million enterprise solution didn't do the problem, but the people that have to clean it up were not funded. That's a really, really bad thing. But at this conference I was at in San Francisco last week, at the S4I Responder Conference at OpenDNS, they had three people come up and said, oh, no, no, it was $40 million at my organization, and we, can't, we actually laid off some people. Oh, and look at Home Depot and, and Sony, who basically have done the same thing. But we won't talk about that. Because what happens is, is you have a triangle. Now, this is a triangle that's required. Now, for all information security people, we have to have a pyramid in our, in our presentations. A guy named Lenny Zeltzer from SAN says we have to do this. And so as you go up, you're getting more and more information. As you go across, you have the visibility. So who has knowledge, right? Who has the most knowledge versus the visibility? And the reality is, is that as you go up from a tactical level to an operational, where you do plans and things like that, to a strategic, where you're talking about ways, means, and goals, and mission, when you do get up to that level, they have less information. The quality of the information is supposed to be better. I was working with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I was required to write a paper. They said, hey, Sam, we want you to write this paper. I said, yes, money. And so they said, write their paper, and I did. It was 50 pages of paper, single-spaced. It was dense. It was full. It had lots of information. It was my life's work. I could just see this thing being a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, you know? I handed it up to the action officers that had given me the task, and the, ta the guy said, that's awesome. That's great. They took it down to an, uh, basically 
an executive summary. That executive summary then went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. By the time it was done, what actually ended up in, in front of the four star was five bullet points, five words each. Yeah. This is the way it works. Because what happens is the ability to compel is at the top. The power to compel comes from the role of being the leader. And you can compel all of us little guys at the bottom all you want. And so it's our job to make sure the best information gets up. And so when we're doing threat intelligence, this funnel is very weird. We get compelled by questions, but what we send back up is very lossful. Regardless of the volume in our threat intelligence feeds, regardless of the amount of analysis we do, the actual volume that gets up there. So we have to make sure it's as high a quality as possible. And there's a whole series of things we talk about in this. So we talk about threat feeds and, you know, they're indicators of compromise in general. And there's a bunch of different standards. Open IOC, Cybox, IODEF, all these things exist out there. And basically what they're talking about is an indicator compromise as some technical instrument. And you can actually take this and there's a, a whole sticks uh, program where you can actually turn threat intelligence into a feed that is actually, you know, automated to give, give machines. Now the problem there is we've just blown away good old Kent Sherman because what do we say? The human has to be in the analysis loop. And I can actually now attack other organizations that are generating the IOCs and create attack paths through the IOCs so you do particular things on your end. This is playing chess in reverse. You know, I, I always want to win, so I play chess in reverse. I start out with how I want to win, and then I figure out the steps and moves necessary to do it and figure out what all your combinations are going to be. That's how the computer solves it. That's how I solve the problems in national security. And everybody's at the middle part of the board trying to figure out what everybody else is going to do next. So the next thing is, is how do you know something is a threat? You know, your vendors themselves may be the threats. Another part is, is that technical intelligence that's coming in in a threat feed is not forensic, nor is it attribution. It's just a threat feed giving you an idea. It's information without context. Yeah, I know. All the, my friends at, you know, all the different companies, they're, they're all mad at me for talking bad about threat intelligence, there's a threat intelligence feeds. And it's not that they do bad. Because if you go read the Verizon Breach Report or you go read the Symantec various threat intelligence products that they produce, they're awesome. They're great stuff. Ponemon has had, had a bunch of stuff that they've done that's great. You know, there's a lot of really great products out there we can go read. Because we need to take it and put it in the category of what we're going to do. We have our forensic side that we do, but now we're looking at the external piece that comes in. So as forensicators, we look and see what failed and what works and give a feedback loop on what we are buying or purchasing from these corporations. This is a big piece to this because we want to get down to a level of evidence. Why? Because in general, we're dealing with a criminal element. If you don't know your vulnerability posture, if you do not know who you are, you should not be buying threat intelligence feeds. If you can't tell me what you have as a vulnerability posture in your organization, if you can't give me a network map, if you can't give me an idea of the, how your core infrastructure is set up, then you should not be buying threat intelligence products. Because why are you buying them? You don't know who you are yet. You know, it's like enterprise know thyself if you want to do these things. You don't know what a threat is. You don't know what a vulnerability is. You may say, well, we have Microsoft and we have this, and you generalize, but the reality is you don't know what you're doing at that point in time. Another problem is data. Now, this is from a project that I had my students do back in 2011, where we took 300 elements of attacks, 300 attacks, and we, we, we actually did all this analysis on them, and we put them into the iOS, iOS uh, 7 layer a model plus two, one being physical and one being people. And we took all of that, crunched it together. And it's pretty meaningless, right? You have the iOS there on the right, and you have the frequency on the left that gives you the numbers for the bars. And across the bottom, you have the years. So by year, it doesn't look very much, right? So this is the other piece to this. Understanding what you're actually showing to leadership is an important part. But this is a little different. So now, instead of showing just the, the years at the bottom, we actually change it show, showing the iOS at the bottom and actually showing on the right the years. And now I can track by year where the adversaries were attacking 
and where the vulnerabilities were being exposed. And early on, we start down around the network layer, move our way up to the social layer, where we're dealing with, with the application space, and then we start securing that, getting people smarter, and they start moving back down the network stack. Understand that when you attack lower on the network stack on the OSI 7 layer model, it's kind of like your old IBM ring model for operating systems. If you own at the bottom, you own everything above it. And so what we're seeing here is we secured the network layer because we saw a lot of stuff, firewalls, intrusion detection systems, and our analysis shows this. So when we talk about this, I already talked about the liberal arts major. You need a diversity of views. You need that one person that's going to say no, and you need that one person that's always going to say yes, and you need them to argue often. Um, and you need to have those people that are, are reading the logs, creating the rules, reporting the issues. You need to be doing that, but you also need the strategic side, which is all the people that look at the nature of it, the history, how they do things, think in cultural vectors, and do those kind of things. So you need both sides of this. Otherwise, it just simply doesn't work. You need to know who the customer is. You know, you talk about management, security teams, analysts, your next employer. Who's your customer? You know, if you're working for a company and they get breached, you want to know who your next employer is going to be because you want to make sure you look really good when you leave. You want to negotiate a hold harmless with management when you're doing this kind of stuff. You want to make sure everybody knows that I'm going to come to you with bad news and you need to not be mad at me because I came to you with bad news every day for the last 365 days. Okay, because my job is to bring the bad news. You also want to know about knowledge, skills, and abilities. Knowledge, skills, and abilities are a big part of this. Morals, politics, motives, all of these come down into what we do also. And the final piece is indicators of compromise. When we start looking at the indicators of compromise that we're looking for, we're looking at the starting point. We want to be able to chain together indicators so they do this, then they do this, then they do this, then we're pwned. Call HR. That's kind of the idea. You chain together these things. You give strategic warning based on certain indicators. You say, oh, we're being attacked this way. Everybody knows about the denial of service attack, the distributed denial of service attack. Everybody's going to know that has an email account or just trying to get out to YouTube. Everybody's going to know. But it, it's the other stuff, the stealthy stuff, that's going to come up to management's level and they need to understand that you need to be able to communicate. And you need to be able to communicate that in a way that they understand. And you need to be able to tailor the solutions to the environment. If the environment is mission critical, regardless of it's been pwned, hacked, exploited, destroyed by the uh, adversary, and the, you still need to do it, you need to keep that in mind that you need to keep operating no matter what. You know, Air Force General used to uh, uh, General Lord used to say, fight through the uh, cyber attack, right? Well, yes, that absolutely is apparent depending on what your mission set is. And finally, questions, thoughts, or concerns? Yes, sir. So you talk about things like technical threat feeds and how they don't currently incorporate human analysis, and Kent highlights why that's critical in the analysis phase. but. Honestly, the reason the feeds exist is because there's this deluge of data. It's too much for any one person to consume. So realistically, how is a human analyst to be integrated? What, what's the workflow? What's the process? Right. So, so one of the things is, is Alex Pinto did a, a bunch of stuff. He's a grad student, a uh, guy out of Brazil. He did a study looking at all the intelligence feeds and the overlaps that happen with those. And one of the things you see is that the intelligence feeds themselves don't provide a lot of the quality that you would expect. And that's me saying it, not him. So you have to add the analyst into these. One of the things is, is you can't vet every IOC that you're going to implement into the network. And a lot of these are coming as products. They're actually manipulating your IDSs and IPSs and your firewalls and those kind of things. So what you have to do is tune. And it's the same thing we've been doing since the late 1990s on a lot of this stuff is you might implement a feed and then watch. You can't implement the feed and forget about it. It's not a reason to replace the analyst. It's a reason to increase the skill level of the analyst. And that's my answer to that. It's, it, you, can't, you can't take them out, but you can at least use them to the best effective way you can. And when you look at the actual threat feeds, there are more than one feed element that have gone into networks where people have found that they have 
actually created a denial of service against themselves because they were the pivot point that came through as the IOC. So that's a, a bad part of it. Other questions? I just had one comment in that. Having listened to General Officer's talk, you know, I've seen one that Corelli would say, I don't need a talking unit. I don't need CNN to tell me what happened. I need you as the intelligence individual to tell me what you think will happen yep. in whatever window of time is important to that decision maker. When you start going there, you start going the same direction as the weatherman, the same direction as the stockbroker who's trying to make on behalf of their clients their viewers on good, disciplined collection of data and analysis what is likely to happen. Yep. But the bottom line is, you don't, the enemy has a vote. Bottom line is, the weather can change and the stock market can react to something that is unforeseen. So there's inherently a challenge of always trying to be more right than wrong. Right. One of the things that they're trying to do there is they're trying to get in front of the problem. You know, you said the enemy has a vote, and what the leadership is looking for is what their vote should be. And they're looking for that kind of answer. It's one of the reasons why you see the top of the pyramid get so small. They're not interested in all the background. They're not interested in all of the verities. They're interested in what can I act upon. The people at the mid-level, they want more because they're, they're having to make determinations, and they're probably the ones actually doing the risk calculus on what the risk calculus is towards telling your leader certain stuff. And that's why leadership looks for that. Other questions? So what time are we supposed to be done in here? A minute ago? Mm -hmm. no, no questions? So you go to my blog. You can find the uh, slides themselves. And there's uh, some source material in the back that I linked. You can go read those. In every, on every slide where I've used external source material, there's actually the credits to where it all came from. Um, there's a lot of people that are starting to look at this. It's kind of interesting to see people starting to look at this kind of stuff. Um, it is not an easy place to get around, especially if we come from technology to the intelligence world. A lot of times we carry a lot of baggage with us. And the intelligence world itself has its own entire language. So, well, thank you very much. I won't keep anybody awake.